You're listening to the Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and uh, for the next 30 minutes or so we are going to be talking about all things food and drink as usual. I am on my own in the studio because Ollie Lloyd of Great British Chefs and Holly Shackleton, a speciality food magazine, have entrusted me with this Christmas special which features all our favourite interviews from this year, uh, 2018. Uh, particular favourites of mine, Dr Seaweed, what a great character he was. Tasting meatballs uh, with beer matching was another good one. Um, Hilltop Honey, how to succeed in food when you've got no GCSEs, which we thought was rather cool. Um, and stuff like growing um, underground in tube stations, fascinating stuff as well as great uh, experts like Tessa Stewart. So here's our favourite 2018 bits. If there's any others that you uh, particularly like and you want us to feature, please do tweet us on at Food Talk Show. So here we go. And I'm absolutely delighted to um, have Tessa Stewart in the studio, who just knows so much. I'm going to I'm going to be extracting loads out of your brain now for 36 <laughs> minutes, Tessa. <laughs> do you want to just give us a little bit of your background? So 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 how you started and what what you actually do? Because you're very much in demand. Thank you very much. I mean, I couldn't have a better intro, could I? <laughs> no, really? really. <laughs> how, how will I ever live up to that? Um, Yeah, I work with food and drink brands, uh, new and established, when they launch a new product onto the supermarket shelves and they want to know whether that's connecting with customers. It's a very expensive business to develop and launch a new product. Mm. And often they have to sit and wait for sales figures when there are things that they might be able to do around the branding, which could make a difference to those early sales and hence their success on the shelf and hence their likelihood of staying in that retailer. I mean, it's interesting. I I asked a shopper, I was in the store doing some work for someone else and I saw someone picking up Pippa Nut and I couldn't resist saying to her, oh, that's fabulous. You know, why are you buying that? And she said, my daughter insists upon it. Mm. Wow. Tesla power. And so to have developed that loyalty where you say to your mum, get me this brand, this is the brand I want. And this seems to be the role of mothers to go out and buy particular brands. From the the child as well, (laughs) not from the parent. I mean, the parent is making the initial buying decision. They're the ones with the money, I guess. Well, it depends on how old the the child is, I guess. But that's really fascinating that it can be, you know, the the brand loyalty is being instilled Mm. from such a young age. Clever bit of marketing. But I also think there's there's, not all consumers are equal and there's a game you've got to play, which is, you know, not all. There are very few brands that start their their infancy in Tesco's. They start their infancy mm. in in small shops. People like Table we were talking to earlier. And actually, you've got to try and create kind of a movement, a groundswell mm. amongst people who start to talk about these brands because the first battle is is fought way before you you know you oh, get yeah. a listing at Ocado mm. or Waitrose mm. or Tesco's. Tesco's is is quite far, you know probably into three four million pound turnover before yeah. you you reach that that level. Mm. Yes, I'd agree. And I think, for example, Peter's Yard, one of their strengths is they went for independent delis and cheese shops. Mm. So it would be pretty rare now that you would walk into an independent deli or cheese shop and not see Peter's Yard in there. And that will protect them. So heaven forbid that they should ever be delisted from 
Waitrose or Sainsbury's where they are as well, or Ricardo, but they have a protected base of revenue from mm. being in those independent shops. Now, that leads me rather nicely to Craig, because Craig calls himself Dr Seaweed, which means he doesn't get invited out to dinner much, but um, you've got... You, you think that Scottish seaweed is great seaweed and obviously Japanese are very famous for producing seaweed for food um, but but you've wandered over to Scotland I have how did that happen so the doctor comes my background's marine biology um, I have a, a PhD and hence the, the, the doctor so it's a legit doctor it's oh, not sort of bought on yeah, respect, don't, don't show me any rashes like or anything Fox like that or yeah. <laughs> not quite DJ um, but maybe after this you never know mm. um so I, I, I met some guys who, who were based up in the Outer Hebrides on the Isle of Lewis. They've got a seaweed factory that harvests the seaweed there, which was going predominantly into agricultural use, animal feed, horticulture. Amazing product for that. And so we started working on food grade production for nutrition, for, for food, flavour boosting, all sorts of different attributes. And so we've been supplying B2B, uh, business to business to manufacturers across a wide range of things we've got a smoked seaweed mayonnaise in M&S, there's seaweed cheeses, there's crackers, soups, all sorts. And then earlier this year, we launched our own range of finished products under the name of Dr. Seaweed. And based on the premise that seaweed isn't weird, it's wonderful, we came up with the brand name of Weed and Wonderful. So it, the whole, from the B2B to now the consumer side, the whole idea is we're taking a sustainable Scottish resource and putting it in formats that are appealing, that are easy to use, whether you're a manufacturer or whether you're a consumer. So what's so good about seaweed uh, health-wise? So from a health point of view, there are, there's about 10,000 different species of seaweed, so it's a really broad term. But the one that we particularly focus on is a really good natural and vegan source of iodine. So the majority of women, particularly in the UK, have got diets insufficient in iodine. The only other natural sources are fish and dairy, and they're on the decline. And if, if you're vegan, that's difficult, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. If you're yeah. vegan, you won't get it. So really, seaweed's the only natural vegan source. So we measure, because we're the manufacturers, we measure every single batch for all the heavy metals, all the microbial, all the safe stuff, and we're measuring for iodine every batch, and we're doing a lot of research on that. So can you just, like, wander along the coast and, and just, like, shove some in your bag, or do you have to be... You can. Is there lots of varieties, and you have to know what There's you're doing, loads. a bit like mushrooms? Absolutely. It's, it's, no seaweed is in itself... Um, toxic or poisonous, but you need to know where you're getting it from. So Because? Because if the waters are polluted, then the seaweed will be. So you can, you're allowed to forage, you can go out and get it. Um, but even still, there are lots of foragers, and it's, you know, it's a big trend, whether it's mushrooms or seaweed or anything else. But for most people, you wouldn't know what to do with it. I'm not ready for a sort of slab of seaweed on my plate. I'm not sure I am either. Exactly. So it's about, so we've put it into oils. So our, our infused oils, we've got three different infused oils. We've got pure seaweed one, a smoked seaweed infused oil, and an intense smoked culinary essence. And these are about taking the culinary benefits of seaweed, the umami effects of seaweed, and putting it in formats that are really easy to use. Everyone knows what to do with an oil. <laughs> Um, I know, Joe, that, that the food waste element is, is part of why Ruby's in the rubble is around. It's something that annoys you, isn't it, or worries you? It's not even so better. much a part. It's the the whole the purpose of, of Ruby's in the rubble is to really provide a practical solution to food waste and a, and a delicious solution to food waste as well, which is something we're really proud of achieving. And um, I suppose to go back to your earlier um, statement and fact that a third of all the 
produce grown never reaches our plates. That's completely true. And it's, it is actually coming predominantly from farms, from from upstream of supermarkets or downstream even from supermarkets and it is systemic to the way our our food is grown and distributed into the big supermarkets and I think the the breakdown is about 40% of of food waste occurs at home a very small percentage at a supermarket level because they will they'll do things like discount it obviously and redistribute it to charities and have staff shops and things like that but most of it is occurring at the farms and it's due to things like supermarket criteria, so aesthetic criteria, things being overripe or underripe so they can't mm. last through a supermarket supply chain and um, simply being in overabundance. You mm. can't control a plant and how much it grows and you see that at home in your garden if you grow fruit and veg at home if there's been been a lots lot. of rain or yeah, yeah. right now I think everyone's not having very much from their garden and that's the same at the farm but I think people are just so used to having everything at their fingertips and we're not we don't really we're so out of touch with with where our food comes mm. from and that's another really strong element of what Ruby's is trying to kind of do is use the brand as a positive platform to just to discuss these things and mm. to remind people that you know fruit is is imperfect it's not waste it's just not they don't all look the same and yeah. trying to remind people of those really simple simple things <laughs> you're doing um is couldn't be further away i don't think than craft beer um is, is um completely nutty different and and it's to do with technology it's to do with agriculture it's to do with farming just explain exactly what you started to do okay so uh, the company is called root wave and the tagline effectively says it all it's zap weeds with zero chemicals and what we're looking to do is launch a scalable and sustainable alternative to herbicides um, herbicides are under increasing pressure recently for a, a number of key reasons. Um, you've got resistance, so weeds are becoming more and more naturally resistant to the use of herbicides, which means the encumbrant technology, the herbicide, is becoming less and less effective, uh, especially prevalent in countries where they overuse uh, herbicides, such as the Americas. Uh, the second issue is regulation, and I'm sure you followed that massive debate in the EU at the end of last year about whether or not to ban Roundup. Uh, it counts for 70% of the herbicide market. It's huge. Uh, and the EU was going to potentially ban it. And, and that will translate directly into increased food prices because farmers wouldn't be able to weed their fields at the costs that they're used to doing and the consumer would ultimately have to pay. And then the third uh, angle is litigation. And there was a recent announcement uh, from California that uh, a court awarded uh, a gentleman uh, nearly a quarter of a billion uh, US dollars um, for um, Roundup causing his skin cancer. Mm. So you bring all those factors together uh, and then the, um, it means the, the herbicide industry is under really a lot of pressure recently and the market is looking to move away. But what do you move to? There's nothing really scalable out there. And that's where electricity comes in, because we can be scalable, we can be cost comparable, we are organic and sustainable. And uh, if you're a farmer, the technology is no-till, which means you don't disturb the soil, which has a lot mm. of issues in terms of carbon emissions and soil erosion. So I'm going to move on now because I'm looking at uh, Jealous Sweets and I'm sitting next to Imran Mirza here. Um, tell us a little story uh, behind these. Should we have these available in Iceland? I mean, well, look, they're vegan. They're vegan and they taste great. 
Mm. So tell us a little bit. Of so should I start from the beginning of how we ended up? Yeah, here? we haven't got a couple of days, but yeah, if you can okay. do it in a few minutes, that'd be great. <laughs> so I was working in the city and not sort of like loving life. It was just hard, hard, and it was t too much money, obviously, and not enough life, and it was just it was awful. And I was trying to find something else to do, and I started dating someone who loves sweets. And I was trying to find. Like she was vegetarian, and I was trying to find something I can give to her as a as a gift. When we first started dating, we'd walk around Woolworths, and all the sweets that she liked had gelatine in them, so she wouldn't eat them. And so I went on a mission to try and find something I can give to her as a gift. And that's where I realised that the whole industry um, is full of <laughs> cheap cheap ingredients, lots of gelatine. Which so what do you mean by sweets? Like old fashioned? Oh, so sweets, gummy sweets, as opposed to chocolate. Yes, or, or, anything, or that's anything not like chocolate. That. Yeah, yeah, but so the old fashioned sweets. Old fashioned yeah. sweets, gummy sweets, things that we grew up eating. Yeah, um, it's all full of chemicals and lots of it's pig fat, isn't it mostly. It's basically. Just imagine anything that you wouldn't eat in a restaurant. So pig eyeballs, um, <laughs> pig eyelashes, skin. It's all the disgusting stuff that you wouldn't normally eat. It's melted pig, melted cow, melted... Scraped off the abattoir floor. Yeah, basically. Anything that you would not normally eat, it's crushed into, like, it looks like breadcrumbs. They add water to it and add sugar and syrup and stuff like that. And that's what makes it really gummy and chemical. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about your background, because you're highly, highly respected in the industry yeah. uh, because because of all the things that you've done. So so just, just try and... I know you're quite a modest man. Just try and show off a little bit and tell us. Um, yeah, so I've, I'm a chef. I have a chef background, worked in restaurants all over the world and 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 uh, then privately for a little while working for kind of rich people, I guess. But um, And um, I kind of fell into um, developing food for supermarkets in the supply base originally for people like Marks and Spencers and Sainsbury's and stuff. And um, I, I then ended up working for, for Asda for 11 years uh, during the Walmart takeover. And believe it or not, I learned more about food after being in a kitchen for 12 years and then uh, spending 11 years working for in food manufacturing and retail. I learned an awful lot more. I went to Waitrose and now um, I've done a little bit of I had my own restaurants as well at the same time. So it's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm now doing stuff for Iceland. Everything you buy needs a recipe, and that's of kind of every packet of food you open, someone is behind it doing the recipe, making sure it works, making sure it tastes good, making sure it's crunchy when it should be. And, and, and that's kind of what I do. And there's a whole group of people behind, for example, this pack of mince pies making sure they're beautiful. Are those the ones that are sold in Selfridges? Yeah, these mince pies. Have, have I just taken your punchline? No, 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 that's uh, it's which, great. I remember yeah. seeing that, that press release, which was that Iceland... So what's the story? So, the, the... so we've got these um, award-winning mince pies that win awards the last couple of years, and, um, and uh, yeah, we, we've removed palm oil. It's very difficult to remove palm oil from a, a mince pie because... Um, uh, all mincemeat legally has to have two and a half percent fat in it. That fat comes from suet. Suet is now vegetable based, not um, you know beef based. So it's been really tricky to remove. There is nobody making um, a vegetarian suet that doesn't contain palm. So it's been really tricky to do. Um, Selfridges wanted to give their customers. 
a palm, uh, an offer or an option of a palm-free Christmas. And we're already there and have done that. So a palm um, oil-free Christmas. Palm well, oil, okay. Yeah. So it's a food without palm, and that's what we've done. And we've decided to remove palm from all of our own brand uh, products. Uh, we've, we've got till the end of the year to do that. Uh, we'll achieve 2018, it. 2019? 2018. Yeah, I, was, I, I was just checking because that, that feels like not a very long time away. I know, yeah, you're right. Oh, it's, 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 so, yeah, so by the end of this year, and, and there is an offer in store, will be for Christmas, where you can choose a palm-free Christmas. So, um, so yeah, that's what's... And that's been incredibly difficult. Palm oil in, it, in his, it's in 50% of what we buy. It's, uh, it's used everywhere. You brushed your teeth with it this morning. You washed your hair with it. You did, you know, you've... It's just pervasive. In the really. toast you had, in, yeah. you know, it's everywhere. So it's um, it's been really tricky to... Now, this moves us rather nicely on uh, to Scott, because we're, talk we're talking about honey now, which is not far off this category, really. Well, it's full of sugar, isn't it? It's full of sugar, yeah. <laughs> now, you, you founded Hilltop Honey in 2011 when you started beekeeping as a hobby. Yeah, so a uh, very quick snapshot of the story. Um, I really uh, sort of bad back injury. I was a coal yard worker and I failed school miserably, so I tried getting an office job. And no one would hire me because I had no GCSEs. So, um, my Were you naughty at school? Pretty bad, yeah. <laughs> Not a lot to do in Mid Wales, so it was, uh, it was good fun just to <laughs> muck around. Um, <laughs> and then um, from there, really, I was, I was left with, with no real option because my, my, my physio, whatever you want to call him, said that you, you know, manual labour days are over for a, quite a, a number of years. So, try and do something non manual labour, and that's all I knew. So, um, once I got my recovery, my mum and dad bought a beehive, which is because I was reading about bees in the winter. And I started keeping bees at the age of 23 in this back garden. And um, I just fell in love with these bees. Like, how I, I thought, how is no one really talking about these? You know, it was before this bit of an uptrend in beekeeping and everything. And um, so, can, can I just stop you for a second? How do you leap from bad boy in Wales to yeah, reading magazines bee about beekeeping? I mean, you know... Well, like, my, my dad's got a small sheep farm. Right. And uh, so I just grew up on the farm and loved being outdoors. And I've been in a factory for a number of years in this coal, in this coal yard. And I, I knew if I wanted to go and do something, I'd want to be doing it outside. And I knew I didn't have any money behind me, so I couldn't... The farm was too small to take me on and everything like that. So I was looking for things to do outside that I could potentially make money from. Um, it, so I started looking at the bees and thinking no one's really talking about these uh, marked them well enough. So on the local level anyway, I looked at all these um, jars of honey and it was very, very boring label. Very, a lot of people was going into retirement and then start to keep bees. So it was just a bit of an ad hoc little thing on the side. So I thought hey, some young blood can come into this and push it and make a thing of it. People might get interested in bees and I'll just educate the consumer on beekeeping and uh, how good honey is, just like we were talking about lemon curd before. The more people that keep bees, they understand how hard it is to keep bees, how hard it is to produce honey, so they buy into the market and really understand. Well, I'm going to move on now to Steve. Um, um, now, Stephen Dring uh, from Growing Underground, you have the most amazing 
operation in my personal view. Uh, it's incredible. And basically, I was I was born in Clapham, but in the sixties, it was pretty it was pretty dire. Trust me. Um, the high street on a Saturday night is still pretty dire. Is it? Yeah. Oh, it was dire during the day then. Um, <laughs> and you have underneath the streets of Clapham, underground on the tube stations, have have actually managed to actually um, start a farm. Really? Bizarrely, we are growing salads and herbs 120 feet below Clapham High Street. So you've got a tube station. So I'm used to, you know, go down. I don't. I go down on the steps or or, or down the escalator, and there's a, there's a platforms and there's like seats and there's a, you know, there's the rails because obviously quite a lot of rats generally. <laughs> how do you how do you take a station and then and then <clears throat> turn it into farm? So, so well, tell me from day one how that how that works. They, they never turned there it into a station. So oh, there any lights? Oh. No, they never turned it into a station. So it was a World War Two air raid shelter, and it kind of oh. sat there. But they had the foresight to say. When the war's over, we'll turn it into a, a new northern line. So there's uh, stations that go from Clapham South all the way through to Belsize Park. And and they never converted it into a northern line. So they've sat there empty, some are storage facilities. So our our tunnel has had 8,000 people down there during the war in terms of an air raid shelter. So you can imagine the size of the place. Um, so yeah, we took that. We went downstairs. And is it just? But it's just a tube tunnel, like like we all go on it, every day. No, no, no. It look, it, it it's a circular tunnel, um, yep. but it has a mezzanine floor across the middle to split oh, into okay. floors. So they have bunk beds upstairs and bunk beds downstairs, and then they never remove that. So we have farm upstairs and all of our amenities downstairs. So and it naturally w- separates. Was there, elect- there must have been electricity through there and everything. Electricity, huge ventilation. Obviously, if you've got eight thousand people down there, you need, need to kind breathe. Of, yeah, yep. exactly. It's always good. Um, and so all the plumbing. Uh, amenities to be able to actually it was designed that if both entrances to the tunnel was hit they could survive down there for three months and that's using the toilet etc wow. etc et wow. so um there's so a lot there was a lot of amenities in place to be able to to, to, to turn it into it's a an incredibly sensible place to go then well really effectively what somebody had done a, a they built a polytunnel for us, 120 feet below London. It gives us a constant temperature all year round. We've got an, a, a basically a, a, an ambient temperature that around 14 degrees. That once we put some LED lights in there uh, to do the growing, uh, then then it just took the uh, a temperature up to the required level. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's provided just that perfect kind of spot in central London for and us to grow fresh produce. And so the LED lights, um, um, and they're they're effectively, you know, replicating sunlight to make sure that these, um, you know, these plants are getting anything they would out outside. Yeah, you have the light spectrum from UV to to, to infrared, and you just pick up those areas uh, uh, that the plants require. So we give the plants exactly what they want in terms of. Air movement, CO2, heat, light, humidity, temperature, etc., etc. And what about the water? How, how does how water, do you water it, them? Thames water, but not from the River Thames, I keep explaining. Thames water. So, yeah. so do you water them normally, like you would normal, you know, just yeah, we, we, along we, with your we, watering we, can? No, 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 no. It has a, it's an ebb and flood system, so we flood the benches. Um, so we sow onto this agricultural matting that acts as our substrate or as our soil. Um, we sow the seeds onto those, and then we, we, we flood the benches two, three times a day, depending on the crops, uh, some slightly less, the, the, the crops that don't, don't want watering so much. Um, and, and then we turn the lights on sort of specific sort of hours for specific products and, and specific crops. Um, and, and it's controlled environment agriculture. It's given the crops exactly what they want. And then we take all of our energy from renewables from a company called Good Energy um, and, 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 and just make sure that we power everything sustainably. And then all of the inputs into the farm, we, we count every single input. So alongside our financial accounts, we have our, our carbon accounts as well. 
um, and then we're looking to be able to, to to move towards carbon neutrality, not just as a company, but also for products as well. God, I don't even know what I to was, say. It's breathtaking, isn't uh, it? As you went through the list of all the things you give your plants, you missed one thing, which I'm hoping you, you're going to put back there, which is music. I'm assuming you play them sort of, you know, beating rock, you know. To sort or, of, or, you Mozart. Know. or Mozart. Every or Mozart. Every time I go down into the farm and the production area, obviously the, the guys are down there working all the time. There is, there is some... We we certainly had to ban some kind of music. People were playing their own music, and it was like that is totally inappropriate for, for the plants. Not just other workers, but the, the salad rocket as well was slightly offended. The rocket. I think I have to say, <laughs> if you haven't created a Spotify playlist that the rocket likes, I think it's the missed opportunity. Oh, of the please decade. go on Spotify. I'll follow yeah, that if yeah. you if you do. Can some, we? Some I cannot believe we've missed that trick already. Growing so underground. So if, if any of you want to um, I see, think so the underground change the tracks then. So I'm at Restaurant and Bar Live, and I've been wandering around looking at all sorts of innovation uh, in the exhibition. There's loads and loads of stuff here, uh, very, very interesting. And I've come across Mark James, and Mark is one of the owners of Fog Check. And the reason why I've stopped at his stand is he has a sort of glass cube, which I'd say was about 60 centimetres square. And inside that is like a dis... well, it looks disgusting... I would say if, if, if you're very kind, you might say it looks like an enormous truffle, but actually it isn't anything like that at all. Mark, what am I looking at at the moment? What you're looking at there is, um, is a fatberg. I thought it was a fatberg. Oh, God, I've never seen one before. It's horrible. Yeah, well, it, th- these, these are fresh out of the sewers, uh, kindly provided by two water companies, um, and the idea is is to draw attention to the fact that uh, sewers across the country are clogging up with fatbergs that look and smell like this. So thankfully you've put it in a glass cube so that we can't smell it. How, how did your guys get it here? Do, do you, does it really smell bad? Yes. Um, <laughs> it, was, it, say, it was provided to us by the water companies, which uh, so we had to collect them from the, the sewer. So what did you do, just turn, turn up the Sainsbury's carrier bag or something? Uh, Sort of. Uh, one of our engineers uh, was suitably equipped with uh, PPE and uh, uh, containment and boxes and bags and so on, and it was gently placed into its uh, receptacle and transported to the show. And and what does it, dare I ask, does it actually smell like? Can you can you liken it to anything or not? Um, it smells like a overflowing sewer. So it smells of it definitely smells of um, effluent, shall we say? Yes. Okay, so I'm just going to describe it. We've got two sort of big, huge blobs, um, which almost look like lava, actually. And they're sort of grey and slightly brown and, and, and sort of black. And, and presumably this is made up of anything that people think they can just chuck down the sink. And because they don't see it anymore, it's out of sight and out of mind. But actually this stuff does collect. So, so what does it, you know, what is it made up of? And can you, like, try not to use swear words if that's at all possible? <laughs> Well, actually, the, the the purpose of attending this show is to is to um, to talk to the principal causes or the people that are the principal causes of fatbergs, which is the restaurant and hospitality sector. So, commercial kitchens, whilst they have uh, they have measures in place to, to prevent it happening, something's going wrong because if uh, what they were using to be compliant and not discharge uh, fat, oil, and grease into a sewer, we wouldn't be looking at fatbergs. Um, the the makeup of the fatberg is fat, oil, and grease. 
So that's the principal stuff, thank goodness for that. I thought it might have worse things in there. But essentially, when people are preparing food, or, or particularly in a restaurant, anything that, that at the time is liquid, you know, or semi-liquid, they're shoving it down the sink. But that doesn't mean to say it stays liquid, does it? Yeah, w- what's happening in professional and commercial kitchens is that, that I mean, there, are, uh, there is equipment installed in kitchens but there's a big question mark as to how effective that equipment is as to, as to prevent fat or ingrease entering the drains. Um, there are also uh, fat digesters which uh, caterers use and it's our contention that fat digesters uh, that have been available to the hospitality sector for years don't work and what they've succeeded in doing in our opinion is emulsifying the fat oil and grease which allows it to flow further down into the sewer and then form a fatberg. It's a bit stinky poo in the, in the studio, it isn't is, it? It is. It's is it a nice smell. I have to say, I love cheese rooms, and we, we seem to be creating a, a, a sonically, our own cheese room, our own yeah. cheese room with sonic equipment <laughs> in it. Yes, we are creating our own cheese room, and that is because I'm joined by Penny Nagel of Feltham's Farm, and she's bought her. Renegade monk cheese, is that what it is? That's right, yes. That's right. So Penny, can you just give us a 60 second lesson on how you make cheese? <laughs> just putting you right on the spot. Didn't prepare you for this at all. Um, so uh, you obviously use milk. Um, and the thing that I love about cheese is that originally cheese, was, they, they think was cheese was created by, um, there's a theory that it was created by uh, riders across the kind of Mongolian steppes carrying milk in their leather bottles, that, uh, in their bottles that were made of cows' stomachs, and that's how cheese was originally uh, started. So that, if you think about that as the basic process. So milk, in essence, separates out yeah. and naturally if you leave it. Probably rather disgusting, but but if you you know if it's not interfered with or looked after, basically it would separate out into something that was solid-like yeah. and something that's watery, and essentially that the is way. the basis of cheese cheese making: yeah. Yeah. curds and whey. Exactly. Uh, so and solid a, and milk, milky stuff. Yeah, exactly. watery stuff. And it's a way to it's a way to store milk originally, mm. um, but as with most things, you get more and more creative with how that tastes and yeah. where it goes. <laughs> So, so I'm just going to do a little bit of recap. Um, Causton Press seems incredibly visually familiar to me, and I'm sure it is to most people who are listening. Um, you've been around for 30 years um, and started with the apple, really, the humble apple. Was yes. that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you have got award-winning drinks, uh, as we all know. And I think one of the things that you're trying to do is, is, is conjure up that nostalgic taste of summer past you know, when you look back and you think, God, that was a lovely... I mean, you just kid yourself, really, probably. But you look back and you think, oh, do you those lazy days and the, the, you know, the grass? Absolutely. I smell the grass and I'm sitting having a picnic. Right. Or, and that's that's what I think you're trying to evoke quite a lot, aren't you, in this sort of calm... Spot on, yeah. Sort of and, and, and the ingredients lend themselves to that British kitchen garden-type flavours and some experimental flavours as well. But, yeah, really building on that on that... Yeah. Nostalgic charm and the not, but not in an old-fashioned way. No, not, no, not, not in a. It seems like in quite a modern way, um, and uh, you never have any nasties in yours. You're not, you're not interested in all that stuff. And most of the cans come in at under sort of ninety calories um, since you've sort of removed sugar and mm-hmm. heading towards that time. And they're always produced from pressing, and you never use concentrate. Absolutely. Right. 
I'm doing your job yeah. for you here, Steve. Uh, you, you're doing a, a fantastic <laughs> job for me, thanks. Uh, in exchange, I'm going to taste some in a minute, so that's that. Uh, Good on you. Good on but, you. But 30 years on, you're now a multi-million pound business. You've, you're, you've got 16 different products. I presume you're in every, pretty much every major supermarket in the country, and, and, and it's just grown and grown for, from, for 30 years, really. Yeah, the, the, the real step changes in the, in the, in the business for me came with the introduction of what we call our fruit waters the sort of picnic box cartons lunch box cartons um and the sparkling range which have been on the market now for four or five years uh those two and that's where it's really uh, and the change of branding from Corston Vale as we were originally to Corston Press putting the new brand design around that and it's really yeah it's really been the last five years or so I'd say where the brand has really started to lift and and to find itself in in all those wonderful places that well not find itself <laughs> we've got it to oh, those but, places yeah, that yeah, you yeah. you've uh, you've described so you're really pleased with um with the feedback we're getting the number of people that recognize the brand you know I, I try to get out and get on the stand at trade shows and and everywhere that I possibly can and even in the three years I've been with the business, the change from, oh, that looks interesting, can I have a taste? Not heard of you, but I, I like the look of what you're doing, to now, so that's three years ago, to now, everyone walking past mm. says, love it, you know, really enjoy the brand, we stock it, love it, you know, I'll try some more, I'll try a different flavour. But there is a real connection and a real understanding of the brand and what we're doing. Mm. It's, it's hot, remarkable. It's <laughs> So the Brewers Association um, is an organisation of brewers for brewers and by brewers, and there's more than 4,600-odd brewery members in the US, and 46,000 members of the American Home Brewers Association are are joined by members of the allied trade. So there'll be other people there, like, you know, the sort of distributors and individuals. But the actual Brewers Association is for brewery members, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, And... um, uh, your the sort of purpose uh, that they have is to promote to protect. I think that's a really good word. Protect the American craft brewing scene yeah, and their beers uh, and the community of brewing yeah. enthusiasts. So that as a very big multinational, you can't wheedle your way in no, and try and pretend yeah. you're one of these. That's you know, on the exactly face that's exactly why this independent craft brewer brewer seal has been introduced to stop the the big multinationals pretending they own but, craft beer brands when they don't. And they actually don't. Yeah, well, they do, but they, they, they yeah. they're not then they're not independent. Um, and your job is, is I mean, Holly's got a pretty bad job you know so no. yeah you hate your job don't you boo yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> and ollie's not very nor have i but your job is even better than ours probably um you are being tasked with um trying to you know promote this over in the uk absolutely it's all about elevating the image of american craft beer in the in the in the uk and europe and across the across the world basically talking about the in, intensely high quality the massive range of flavors the diversity the versatility mm. how well it goes with beer and food and there's just so much going for it and yeah it's not just about one brand it's about the, the whole gamut oh, yeah. of american beer so, so, style. so because the funny thing shall, is shall we try some beer please, now please, please. excellent yes okay but you need to talk us through it and obviously okay. um uh, we have to describe what we're doing because okay. on the radio um, um i've got so a bottle got a of water. Um, i've got a port city porter that was me opening the bottle mm-hmm. 
Um, Port City? From those... Port City Brewing Company in is... Alexandra in Virginia. It's an incredibly well-regarded brewery. It's won loads of awards and loads of medals. Uh, this beer itself has won loads of medals. I always thought so this was very, very London. It is. It oh, is. It is, it is it, a traditional it, London. History, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was started in, in the 1700s. I've got, in... got an extra point there, Holly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was... Uh, it was uh, it started in um, in London in the 1700s for people for the guys you know carrying heavy loads around and they became they became known as porters, and um, it's it's a very uh, yeah it's a very traditional style. So but, so what we're going to do is stick st stick our noses in here. What you do is you have two uh, two short sniffs first. Mm -hmm. oh, I just went up my nose, <laughs> and, you, and you then you take the beer away from your from your nose and then you bring it back and you have a really really deep sniff. No, like that, so you can really malty. get those 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 aromatic, lovely flavours getting hitting the back of your back of mm. your throat and the back of your nose. And, and it looks a porter being a very dark beer. It, it, it sort of looks like Guinness, doesn't it? It, it looks it, like it's, Guinness, it's but it's almost it's, black. It's, yeah, it's totally but it's, completely different. But it's not, and, it, and, it, and it's got that very frothy, almost um, milky coloured head on it. Yeah, that's all. And that's, that's normal exactly for a porter. But then all the flavours in here, you should be getting. Well, I'm getting. Don't forget, smell and taste is personal. It's absolutely personal. So. You might not get what I'm getting, but I can smell chocolate. I can smell coffee, things like espresso coffee. I can smell porcini mushrooms. I can smell uh, soy sauce, kind of marmite. Lots of savoury, umami kind of things going on. Uh, so it's a big, bold, nice, intense, really rich, toasty, great. It's great for food matching. And I'm going to show but you Andrew's in a minute. Andrew's just laughing his head off there. You're not getting any of that, are you? I'm just are getting you? the beer. <laughs> He's get, you're oh. just, you no. I don't know why we invited you on the programme. And I'm following James down now um, through the um, auction house and all sorts of pens and gates, and he's definitely checking out different cows, talking to the, uh, the farmers, and obviously deciding what he's going to buy. So, so James, James, when we're looking at cows here, these two, these two beautiful cows here, how do you, how do you tell, you know, looking on the outside? Because it's not, it's not about being pretty. It's not having a nice face, is it? What, what are you actually looking for? Yeah, I'm looking for a nice bum as well. Uh, well, the shape of it, because obviously that's the meat. You're looking for the, the bone structure. It's fine boned. Um, if it's empty, so obviously how much belly it's got, because when it's sort of it's, it kills out better. Um, the breed, sort of, sort of looking for cover on it, so it's got some nice fat, it's got fat on it. Looking at the farmer, seeing if you, what, you know, what, how they look after them, with the local, where they're from, how old the beasts are. So those sorts of stories at the background are important to you, it's not just about the cows, it's no, about the it's provenance. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a provenance totally, and it's like knowing, trusting the farmer. And, they, and you don't have to, once you know them, you know them, you have the same people week in, week out, but... Um, yeah, it's just yeah, it's just a little bit. I've been mean, for twenty five years, and my granddad did it. And you just get to this experience, yeah. experience. Yeah. And and these cows we're just talking about here, the, yeah. these, you know, I mean, they're lovely, but yeah. they're a little bit elderly. Yeah, they've come. They're basically cows that have uh, they've either been used for breeding off or ex milking cows have got over age, so they've been. They might be five, six years, seven years old, and they'll just go back to the food chain. Um, just like say for ready meals, there's, there's a place for them. So yeah place for them yeah. I feel I feel a little bit sorry for them to be honest yeah yeah, yeah I'm looking at well, I'm looking at them now but I suppose they've managed to make it to six or seven well, years these, these yeah. beautiful ones these here will be, yeah well, they'll be maybe yeah five six seven years maybe eight year old these will be two year old so maybe 14 month 15 month so maybe I shouldn't feel so sorry no, for these old no, cows no, over no, here yeah, no, I know what you mean though no, yeah you, 
put them out to pasture. But yeah, yeah, and then there's a big bull there, you see, so it'll be a bull that's been used. So you can't feel sorry for him. <laughs> no, he's had a blooming good life, hasn't he? Seven years of being, yeah, you know, shoved be into fields, yeah. looking yeah. after women. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, but yeah, but it's, um, I think it's good that they're using everything back in the food chain that's getting used in the right way. And, um, because, you know, I think it's, it's yeah. that's how it should be. And, and so you'll have a little look here. And, yeah. and so this is before it goes into the auction. They've all got sort of numbers on. And you, yeah. you presumably got an eye on what you're interested in buying. Yeah, and probably got a figure yeah. in your head. That you're happy to no, but you're happy. But you must yeah, have a ceiling of what you're prepared to pack. I have, I have a figure by the kilo, so the weight will come up, so you know it weighs, and then you'll start bidding for the kilo. Um, and I have a price in my head, straight, you know what I'm thinking. And then it's just it's it, it's like in London on stock exchange of like farming, you bid against other buyers, and it's almost like who dare who got, you push them on, they push you. It's easy to get drawn in and pay too much, you know. Like any auction, yeah, really. Yeah, and that's the thing. You've got some cow. Like some people just love a certain cow, and they just buy them, and they don't care. Not many butchers do, but farmers do that. <laughs> yeah, get attached um, to them. Yeah. So we're going to go over to the ring in a minute, presumably. Yeah, yeah we're going to wander up to the ring. We'll, we'll get inside the ring, and you can sort of view on there. Yeah, and we'll they'll sell them. Yeah, Great. yeah, is that okay? Brilliant. Wander Great. over there. All right, here we go. So I'm looking at this huge cow that's just come into the middle of the ring. He's looking a little bit startled. He's wandering around. And uh, this is 590 kilos. Farm assured, and he's 22 months old. Is that one sold, James? Yeah, I bought that one. Oh, he's, oh, you just bought that one? Oh, board, 22 months, by, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, Keelan Farm, yeah. got it. Okay, so he bought that one for £1,389. So there you have it. Um, there were so many great interviews of 2018. Uh, we couldn't feature them all, but uh, for various reasons, they, they were our favourite bits. Um, I really do wish you, as I'm sure Holly and Ollie do too, a, a prosperous 2019. Hope you've had a, a great 2018. And we'll be back with more amazing guests. Uh, we can't wait uh, next year. Um, and as you know, you can download our weekly po- podcast from iTunes, Spotify and the podcast app on your phone, as well as the wonderful Great British Chefs website. And um, please do have a great week and uh, we will definitely be seeing you next week.